This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Today, I'd like to talk about hypernatremia or an elevated sodium level. Remember, in the last podcast, we were talking about hyponatremia and talked about some of the signs and symptoms and, and what would be the appropriate treatment. And today, we're going to talk about the opposite end of that spectrum. And what do you do when you have an elevated sodium? Well, hypernatremia, by definition, is anyone who has a serum sodium of greater than 145 milliequivalents per liter. And some would say that it's relatively uncommon in the overall uh, hospital population. Some data would say that it occurs in about 1% of the hospital population. And among ICU patients, about 9%. So, you know, it's, it's not as uncommon as some may think, particularly in a burn patient uh, where they have destruction of the skin envelope, they are very predisposed to development of free water losses. So you might see it in the burn unit more commonly than perhaps other ICUs. Hypernatremia just simply develops from a net loss of free water, and that can be from any potential source, uh, the skin, and uh, again, a large wound such as a burn, uh, an open abdomen would be another source uh, of significant free water loss, the gastrointestinal tract, the lungs, or the kidneys. Um, uh, that's another important thing to keep in mind is that humidified, uh, the humidification of um, inhaled gases is a, a very important method to uh, prevent dehydration. Uh, the other thing is you can get it from a hypernatremia from a net gain of sodium. Uh, so both from a loss of free water and a net gain of sodium. Because thirst mechanisms generally act to overcome increases in serum concentrations, usually in an uncomplicated uh, patient who is not sedated, perhaps um, we see this more commonly in infants and elderly patients who may have limited access to free water, or in patients who have a central nervous system dysfunction. Now again, in an intensive care unit, and particularly in patients who are orally intubated, they're on a mechanical ventilator, they don't have free access to water. They can't determine when they're thirsty, and when they are thirsty, uh, basically get up and get their own drink of water or communicate that to us. So in a lot of times in an ICU setting, it may not be so much a manifestation of a disease process, but it may be a manifestation of the fact that we are not sensitive to what the patient's overall 24-hour free water requirements are, or perhaps we're not sensitive to the magnitude of the patient's evaporative losses, which is something certainly that can occur in in patients who have large open wounds, again, such as a burn patient or somebody who has an uh, open abdomen. Now, uh, there are a variety of methods of, to diagnose hypernatremia, and most of those methods use both an evaluation of the patient's volume status as well as the urine sodium uh, or osmolality to determine what the underlying abnormality may be that's leading to the hypernatremia. So when you go to evaluate this patient, perhaps the, the first uh, hint that your patient may be hypernatremic, particularly in the ICU patient, is that you have a serum sodium that's greater than 145. After you've determined that your patient has a hypernatremia as determined by the serum sodium uh, concentration, then assess the urine sodium. And so you're getting urinary electrolytes. You want to know whether that sodium is, the urinary sodium is less than 20 or greater than 20. If it's less than 20, it means basically that the kidney has a high avidity for sodium. It's trying to retain that sodium. And then once you say your urinary sodium is less than 20, you want to assess the volume status. So no matter what direction you're going, whether your urine sodium is less than 20 or greater than 20, you want to know what the urinary sodium is and what the volume status is. 
if they have a urinary sodium of less than 20, uh, they could be hypovolemic or euvolemic and hypervolemic. Now, if they're hypovolemic with a low urinary sodium, the causes there could be uh, things like diabetes insipidus, renal disease, or osmotic diuresis. Diabetes insipidus, you'll see large, uh, basically free water out in the urine. Uh, There's two types of diabetes insipidus, and we'll get into this a little bit later in this talk. Renal disease, certainly uh, they can be um, causing basically the uh, passage of free water through the uh, kidney. And an osmotic diuresis would be something like a patient who's been administered mannitol. If your patient has a low urinary sodium, and they appear to be euvolemic or hypervolemic, then the uh, cause of the hypernatremia in that case may be mineral corticoid excess. Now let's go down the other diagnostic pathway. We have somebody who has an elevated uh, serum sodium of 145. We get their urinary sodium, and their urinary sodium in this case is greater than 20. And then we want to go to the next step is determine what is their volume status. Well, our, our volume status could be that the patient is either hypovolemic or they could be kind of in the category of euvolemic or hypervolemic. And if they're hypovolemic, um, the typical cause is an extra renal water loss. Uh, And again, what could cause that? Well, large wounds and and the like. And in this case, it would be the burns. Now, they could be euvolemic or hypervolemic. And again, the hypervolemic, I think, is what really gets a lot of people confused, kind of like when we talked about people who had hyponatremia or low urinary sodium. The vast majority of people, I would think, that when they see that low sodium, they say, oh, they're in volume overload. They have too much free water. In this case, uh, perhaps the naive individual would say, well, you know what? They have an elevated sodium, and therefore they have less free water, and therefore they're dehydrated. And that's not the case. Don't fall into that trap. What would make somebody, say, have a high serum sodium, meaning they're spilling out sodium, and they look euvolemic or hypervolemic, and it's iatrogenic sodium administration. They're getting too much sodium. They may be in, in a form of diet and pills or medications. So that's, that's your diagnostic approach to the patient with hypernatremic. What are going to be the signs and symptoms of your patient with hypernatremia? Well, they're mostly related to the cardiovascular and central nervous system uh, complications. The cardiovascular complications really come from dehydration, uh, and they include such as hypotension, uh, shock. Your patient may have an elevated BUN. Uh, They can have acute tubular necrosis. Uh, Signs and symptoms related to the hyperosmolality uh, would include things like anorexia, Muscle and weakness, uh, muscle weakness, restlessness, nausea, vomiting, uh, even an altered mental status. Uh, you can get intracerebral and subarachnoid hemorrhage, and this is felt to be secondary to basically the uh, brain losing some of its volume, and by doing so, uh, causing tension on some of the bridging uh, uh, blood vessels uh, that are disrupted by the brain shrinkage. Now, the management of hypernatremia is really based on what the underlying mechanism is, and this is something that we really want to stress And just about any ICU problem is, um, you know, we could talk about causes of hypoxia, and and that's probably a a talk that's appropriate to give. Um, But you're called to the bedside if somebody has a low oxygen saturation. Well, the simplest thing and probably the most common thing to do is that people would turn up the FiO2 or the which is the amount of or the concentration of oxygen that's being inspired. So somebody may go from, say, a 30% concentration of oxygen to a 50 or 100%. Well, does the oxygen saturation get better? Of course. Have you treated the underlying problem? 
We don't know. Um, and we'll talk about that at another time. So you really want to get down to what is causing this situation. And you can see by, by the different diagnosis we talked about that there could be a variety of things, from diabetes insipidus to excess uh, steroid administration to extra renal water loss from a wound or iatrogenic sodium administration. And all those seem to be you know, somewhat far apart. They're, they're not a whole lot of common ground between this. So you really want to kind of dive into what is the underlying cause. Now, the management we said is based on what is the typical problem. You want to drill down on what is the nature of the hypernature, what is causing it. And then you want to correct reversible causes, something like diabetes insipidus. Diabetes insipidus is a really cool condition. Um, not so cool if you're the patient, but it is, I, th I think, a neat condition to treat. The most common situation that I've seen diabetes insipidus, is, is, as somebody who has done a lot of trauma surgery, is that somebody can have uh, a, a, a severe brain trauma. What happens in that situation is that the posterior pituitary does not produce uh, an antidiuretic hormone, um, arginine vasopressin. And therefore, since you don't have uh, the antidiuretic hormone, uh, uh, arginine vasopressin, the distal collecting tubule does not reabsorb the water. And therefore, the water flows out of the uh, kidney and produces a very dilute urine. And you've got a dilute urine with a low osmolality in the face of hypernatremia and an increased uh, serum concentration, which is manifested by what? An elevated um, uh, serum osmolality. Perhaps we could do a whole other talk on this. Um, and in those circumstances, in what we call central diabetes insipidus, we end up giving um, DDAVP. Um, and what that does is hopefully the, the kidney will respond, the distal tubules will become uh, more um, permeable to water, and hopefully decrease the large urine output of free water. Um, my wife is a, a pediatric endocrinologist, uh, and she sees a lot of children who have pituitary adenomas, uh, and they have had a pituitary resection, and they can have diabetes insipidus from that. Very uh, similar mechanism is that the posterior pituitary is not present, and therefore it cannot produce um, the uh, aqueous vasopressin to increase water absorption from the distal tubule. Now, there's also something called nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. And nephrogenic diabetes insipidus is the actual problem is with the kidney. So you give your DDAVP, and what happens to your output? It doesn't get any better. It means the disease isn't because you have a lack of, of aqueous vasopressin. The disease is because the kidney's not responding to it. This has uh, been something that, that classically has been described with people who may have uh, be chronically on lithium. Um, and we have recently had a patient in our intensive care unit who we uh, identified who had hypernatremia. And then we started talking uh, to the patient. They said, oh, yeah, our whole family will drink a lot of water. They drink water everywhere. We have a large property. And um, we have kind of basically depots of water around the property. And by talking to the family, yes, this was a problem that was the whole family. And we ended up identifying a hereditary um, Diabe uh, nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, and we had to get them in with our endocrinologist, the whole family, based on one patient who presented to our emergency department, to our uh, burn center. So this was a fascinating case. Uh, but again, we're here to talk about hypernatremia and not uh, diabetes insipidus. 
If they do have nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, uh, typical drug administration, that is hydrochlorothiazide, which is kind of paradoxical because you have a patient who's got all this large urine output. They have liters and liters of urine output, and we're going to give them a diuretic. And believe it or not, it actually gets better. Uh, the other drug you can give is amylaride. Um, if they're hypernatremic, uh, we certainly want to discontinue administration of uh, external forms of sodium. Uh, again, get with your pharmacist. Look at, uh, is there things that we can dilute or make perhaps more physiological? A lot of times antibiotics are reasonably hypertonic. Correct any hypovolemia. Uh, again, this is not too uncommon. Uh, and you want to use balanced salt solutions to treat the hypovolemia. Things like lactate ringers or normal saline or plasmolite. Uh, like I said, a lot of you have asked for me to give a more detailed talk on fluid and electrolytes, and we're trying to build that foundation, and we will. Um, you want to replace the free water deficit. And again, you don't want to do this too quickly because you can create neurological complications. We've talked about those in the talk on hypernatremia. And remember the general rule that I mentioned is that things that happen quickly, you want to correct quickly, and things that happen chronically or more insidiously or slowly, you want to correct more slowly. How do you go about correcting your free water deficit is you actually need to calculate it. And uh, my experience is on an audio podcast um, talking about complicated formulas um, uh, is difficult to follow. And some of you may be driving, riding a train, running, uh, working out. Um, uh, some people even email me and say they, they plan me while they're putting their baby to sleep. And that may be very effective. Um, but one of the things, you, you want to look at the formula for calculation of free water deficit. You can get that virtually anywhere. But once you've calculated that, you want to replace about half of that deficit over the first 24 hours. So if your free water deficit is 8 liters, you do that calculus. You know, you're going to give half of your fluid replacement back on top of your maintenance fluid. Don't forget that, that. You've got your maintenance fluid requirements you're giving the patient. In addition to that, you're giving your replacement uh, on top of that over the first 24 hours. And then you give the, the balance of that half over the ensuing 48 to 72 hours. Again, like um, with the treatment of hyponatremia, you have a maximal correction rate. Uh, for the more acute onset of hypernatremia, you want to be looking at a rate of no, a correction rate of no faster than one to two milliequivalents uh, per liter per hour. Um, so again, I take things a little bit more conservatively over a 24-hour period. You know, we're not going to be going for a big change, probably no faster than a rate of one. If it's more of a chronic onset, the rate of correction is roughly 0.5 milliequivalents per liter per hour of sodium. And again, since you want to track that uh, correction rate so you don't have too rapid or too slow of a correction rate, you need to be getting uh, symptomatic, or excuse me, you want to get serial uh, electrolytes. And if your patient is symptomatic, obviously you're going to do that more frequently at a Q2 to 4 hour rate. If it's an asymptomatic patient, you're going to be getting your serum sodium levels about every 4 to 8 hours. That wraps it up for this episode of Surgery ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. We have other podcasts uh, that you can certainly uh, check out. One of them is called the PHTLS Podcast. Uh, that is dedicated uh, to the treatment of pre-hospital trauma care. Also, uh, we have the podcast Pharmacology for the Pre-Hospital Professional, which is a discussion of pharmacology. Uh, that is a companion to a, a textbook that I have called uh, Pharmacology for the Pre-Hospital Professional. 
If you are not a pre-optical professional, I still think the material in there is very valid. I learned quite a bit by writing it, and I suspect that if you are a nurse, a resident, or a physician, uh, you would, or a, you know, attending physician, there are things uh, regarding critical care and drug administration that you may benefit from as well. Thanks for downloading, and have a great day.